This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. Shake it up. Shake it up. Yes, indeed. If President Trump really wants to shake up trade, well, it may not be putting tariffs on steel and aluminum because that's not going to cause China too much pain. Something else like electronics, perhaps, could really do it. Let's talk a bit about that with Tom Giles. He's executive editor at Bloomberg Technology, uh, really to talk about potential risks if the president targets something like technology. Tom joins us from our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Hey, Tom, good to have you here. Yeah, Great get, to be here. You know, right, you know, we're all kind of focusing on these proposed tariffs against steel and aluminum, but we're really trying to put it into perspective that, you know, it might not have such a, a, a big impact in terms of maybe hurting China here, specifically, if it was electronics, if it was technology, what would that be like? Yeah, I mean, when you're talking about the raw material, so much of our electronics are made, manufactured, put together, and finished in China, or or at least gotten so far down the road that once they come here, we're just putting the finishing touches on it. We're the U.S. big tech companies like Apple are not buying tons of steel and aluminum for their products. Those products are very much used to make Apple's products and other devices made by the other big U.S.-based manufacturers. The thing is, they come here already finished. Um, Where you would really hurt the U.S. consumer uh, electronics makers is if you levied a tariff on the finished goods just to use China as one example, metals made up 5.1% of American imports from China, mm-hmm. but machinery electronics made up 48%. So we're buying the finished products and and the iPhones, the laptops, the iPads that we're all using every day. Um, if you were to, if you were to slap something on those, that could really pose a problem. Well, I'm curious if the folks in Silicon Valley and the folks that you talk to in the technology community are they beginning to get a little bit nervous about if this goes any further or not yet? Well, so just to give you one example, if you look at Apple share price, it's up a little bit today. Um, we're up near record levels for this stock. This mm-hmm. is a company on the march to becoming a trillion-dollar company. You look at that, and it seems to me that investors are not getting overly concerned. Where you start to hear, you know, there's a lot of chatter about will there be retaliation? Will China impose tariffs um, on our goods? I mean, we sell a lot of <laughs> a lot of electronics right back to China. Right. Um, so that's where you would see that's where you would see it show up. You know, it's really interesting too, and I feel like as we 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 have these kind of global trade conversations and look at the potential for more tariffs, um, think about right for China though all that manufacturing of those finished iPhones, smartphones, what have you, those electronics that ultimately get sold into the United States. I mean, that is a huge economy over in China. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we get, you know, China is an integral to the manufacturing of so many of these devices. Now, I do want to caveat one thing. We mm-hmm. spoke to Gene Munster, yeah. um, who is a longtime watcher of Apple. 
he calculated that if the tariff does include finished goods, things like the Mac and the iPhone, the costs would go up, but very small, 0.2%. So the hmm. sense is the sense is that we wouldn't have a really really major major impact on on China uh, excuse me on the, man, the on the likes of Apple the problem is we just there's so much we don't know about right. what this tariff is going to look like and i guess uh, Donald Trump is going to make a final announcement sometime next week, right? Right, exactly. So we'll get more in terms of the specifics. And I know, you know, uh, our David Weston of Bloomberg TV did talk with the Commerce Secretary, Wilbur Ross, um, you know, and talked about what's going on in terms of uh, aluminum and, and, and steel. And it's more of a global tariff, and it's not just targeting right. specifically the Chinese. Um, you know, it's interesting, too, that I wonder about the conversation that the tech community is able to still have with officials in Washington, President Trump and his team. We know initially, uh, right after uh, the administration took office, there were these global corporate boards and a lot of executives, mm -hmm. but a lot of those tech executives have left that board, and I'm curious if their voice is still being heard uh, within the White House. Well, it's interesting. Um you would think that once those boards were disbanded, that they may not be able to have quite the same degree of in at the White House. My sense is if Tim Cook wants to talk to Donald Trump, there's going to be a phone call. There's going to be if mm -hmm. it's if it's something that's really urgent. And in fact, we've we've talked to some of these tech executives who've said to us when I really wanted to convey what I thought on a subject, I was able to get through. Um, they feel like they have a way in into Washington, into the White House, one way or another, whether it's just, you know, you pick up the phone, you make the visit to the White House. Tech executives have been there. Um, there is we know that there is a ramp up in lobbying. Um, we just did some some data. We just gathered some data on this. Amazon has really been ramping up. In fact, their rate of increase in terms of the amount that they're spending, the number of agencies that they're targeting, uh, the number of issues that they are trying to engage with Washington on has really gone up in recent years. In fact, at a faster pace than any of the other players. Google has been there um, for a really uh, for a long time. Mm -hmm. They've been aggressively lobbying. Um, these big companies have a way of getting their their voices heard in D.C. one way or another. All right. So so on this issue and and certainly on others that they're being heard. Um, great to check in with you and, and put this into perspective in terms of uh, what this could mean if, if indeed it plays out. Tom Giles, thank you so much. Executive Editor at Bloomberg Technology. Uh, Tom joining us in our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Yeah, in California, you got me running back again. California. Yeah, we've got a lot of homeowners running back to California after those devastating fires late last year, rebuilding their homes. And that's what we see, building again only to burn again in California's fire country. It's a story in this week's Bloomberg Business Week. Uh, Chris Flavel is climate policy reporter at Bloomberg News. He joins us uh, from Washington, D.C. Um, and I know, Chris, you and I have talked about this story or, uh, story earlier in the week. Um Important story. Take us back to the spring of 2005 and Jennifer Giambattista. Who is she and what was she warning, um, the warning she issued to California lawmakers? Yeah, Ms. Giambattista was a policy analyst at the California legislature in 2005. 2005, California had just gone through what was then a really bad spate 
of wildfires. People were worried and thought, what's going to happen? And she wrote a report, oddly prescient, warning that the problem here was the state and local officials were unintentionally making things worse by encouraging people to build in dangerous areas. And her report said, if we don't stop this and change those incentives, it'll get worse. And sure enough, we now know 13 years later, she was right. Right. And you talk about um, the cost of wildfires. Just walk us through the numbers because they are pretty, pretty uh, eye opening. Yeah, we tried to in this story break down uh, how much these things cost in sort of a life cycle idea before the fire, during the fire, after the fire. That cost is spread well beyond the homeowners affected. Certainly people whose homes are burned down, they suffer a lot. There's no question about that. Mm -hmm. But that cost yeah. also is borne by federal taxpayers through FEMA. It's borne by state taxpayers through CAL FIRE, the state fire service. It's borne by insurance companies, which then, of course, pass on those costs to all their statewide consumers. And so there's a real cycle here. Uh, and and the, the big thing that people I spoke with emphasized was it's sort of a classic case of moral hazard. Mm -hmm. The people who live in these areas, they're the ones who reap the benefit of the beautiful, and it is beautiful, view of living in this part of the country, but they don't pay the full cost. Again, that cost gets shifted onto others, not least firefighters, right? A lot of the injuries and deaths come from firefighters who have to go and put themselves at great risk to fight these fires, especially especially sort of galling when they're so predictable. Right. And as you mentioned, in 2005, so the cost of wildfires were about, I think, a quarter of a billion dollars, $250 million. By 2008, it was $500 million. And this fiscal year, $700 million already spent. What's tough is, Chris, right, you've got state and local officials, right, they want to rebuild their communities, right? There's a housing shortage. We talk about it all the time in California. So that's going on. So there's pressure to do that. At the same time, as you say, these are fire-prone areas. And history has shown mm -hmm. a fire once, we're going to get a fire again. One of the things we tried to emphasize in this piece is it's a real dilemma facing local officials. They are trying to respond to legitimate interests by people whose homes are burned down and they want to rebuild. Mm -hmm. They also have to think about their local economy and their tax base. Uh, those factors all point in one direction, which is keep building, and if it burns down, build it again. They also, I think, at some somewhat more hypothetical level, have to worry about future wildfires uh, but that risk is less present. It's less pressing. And the tendency seems to be to play down that risk of future fires and focus on the immediate benefit of rebuilding, uh, which uh, is both totally rational and also sets up this horrible cycle of continuing to be struck by ever worse fires right. that burn ever more homes. Where's the California uh, insurance industry or the insurance industry overall? Because I think you put in your story that they face a record $12 billion in claims after last year's wildfires. Where are they? I mean, those people in fire-prone areas, are they paying higher premiums or not necessarily? So I think what's happening now is insurers are trying to investigate their losses and, and decide what to do. There's a heavily regulated insurance market in California, and it might get more regulated. I spoke with the insurance commissioner, Dave Jones. He's looking at ways to make it even harder for insurers to raise premiums for people who live in these areas, which, if you're a homeowner, is great news, right? Mm -hmm. But if, if you're a, an insurance company or an insurance customer, someone else in the state, you worry that those costs have to be borne somehow. Uh, and insurance officials told me if they can't charge actuarially sound rates to people in these fire-prone areas, they'll just charge higher rates to people elsewhere in the state because they can't lose money. They right. can't, they've got to be made whole somehow. So it's another case of cross-subsidizing people who want to live in these beautiful areas but maybe 
unintentionally don't quite want to pay the whole cost. Just got about 50 seconds left here, Chris. What's interesting, too, is this mirrors what's going on on the West Coast in California, mirrors kind of what we've seen in the East Coast, right, with some of the the hurricanes Mm -hmm. and the the shorelines Mm -hmm. and the homes that have been devastated uh, as well, kind of that moral hazard, right? The homes get destroyed on these beach beach areas, and then they get rebuilt again, only to be vulnerable again. Just, just, it's the same story, right? The same argument. It's the same thing, and it's the same challenge. People never obviously want to admit that the place they live, the place they love, might not be sustainable. Um, We're just getting to the point now where these storms and wildfires are so bad, we now have to start thinking about, are there areas that don't make sense, and, and what are they, and what do you do? All right. Great story. And Chris, thanks for carving out some time for us to talk about it. Chris Chris Flavel, excuse me. He is our climate policy reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from Washington. Check out his stories at Bloomberg.com. And of course, in Bloomberg Business Week, and you can tune in to Bloomberg Business Week with myself and Julia Chatterley tonight at 6 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. And you can also watch Bloomberg Business Week Saturday at 12 noon Wall Street time on Bloomberg TV. Yeah, that's what uh, a bunch of retailers, that's kind of their mood following uh, some of their reports following the holiday shopping season. And that's definitely impacted uh, JCPenney, shares of JCPenney. Uh, We did see uh, some selling uh, in that name, in fact, tumbling big time today in the wake of lukewarm results during the fourth quarter. And that included, of course, the Christmas season. Let's talk about the company, The Outlook. Uh, Ephraim Levy is uh, equity analyst at CFRA Research. He joins us on the phone in New York City. Ephraim, good to have you here with us. So JCPenney, they come out with their results. Uh, You know, I would think that at this point, investors not, you know, surprised to have some disappointing news uh, from a retailer. But put it into perspective, what did this quarter tell you about kind of where JCPenney is right now? Sure, Carol. This is a kind of a mixed to negative report. Uh, their earnings were below our estimate, but above the street consensus on an EPS basis. And, and revenues, while largely in line, were slightly lower than expected. Uh, on a top-line basis, when you look at a comm store sales for retailers that mm-hmm. have been struggling, 2.6% would be a decent number, except for uh, when you figure that the holiday pre-announcement was actually an even stronger 3.4% for JCPenney's, then that means that there was a slowing in January. So that's a sign of weakness. And the company's guidance for the year uh, is lower than we had expected, and I think most of the street had expected for profits. And what we're starting to see with the retailers, right, because we, we've heard from a bunch of them this week, you know, that some are doing better than others. We're starting to see kind of some names separate themselves from the pack. Yes, uh, you know, it's been a challenging secular retail environment, particularly for the department stores uh, and their valuations as a result. Uh, but with a relatively strong uh, holiday season, I guess at least relative to original expectations and fears, uh, those valuations have often improved. But then you get a case for a J.C. Penney where you know they get today's results and people are less sanguine. Yeah, exactly. And I should put out that shares of JCPenney, they were down as much as 13%, now just down about 6%. But I guess as the overall market has kind of bounced back a little bit, we've seen JCPenney also come back. My point is, though, with department stores, Macy's, right, uh, we saw Mm -hmm. them surging this week. We saw Nordstrom getting beat up. Um, And then we see JCPenney. So, you know, different stores, um, investors are starting to kind of not treat them all as the same. 
In terms of JCPenney's strategy, the CEO, Marvin Ellison, he's looking to drive sales um, of Fryum with big ticket items such as appliances. He's trying to boost traffic with services such as salons and Sephora shops. Does this make sense? Well, I think he's looking to do some of the right things, some of the blocking and tackling you know, appliances, you know, that Sears is giving away market share, and why not take advantage of that? Sephora has been doing really well for JCPenney's for a number of years, and it's a positive, one of the, the key strengths of the company. What they have to do now is find some of the areas to improve that have been struggling, such as women's apparel, and make sure they can get that straight while improving profitability. Is there anywhere else that JCPenney can cut costs? Because they've already done it, and they're, they're cutting another uh, 300 jobs or more than 300 jobs. That, new, that news also came out with their latest update. Well, there's always room to, to find cost cuts, and sometimes that's painful, especially uh, if it involves uh, people. But you know, part of the business is, is to be continually evolving. And some of the places you can look for is, is marketing and finding, make sure you get more bang for your your buck when you when you spend money, whether it's online or other advertising, um, and then you know, operational efficiency and trying to get the stores to being able to be effectively a warehouse where you can ship from the store as opposed to from, from a warehouse. So there's the room for improvement there, uh, but still, you know, you're facing some headwinds. I mean, what's the story, Ephraim, when you look at these retailers at this point? Is it a case of looking at your best uh, retail properties and just beefing up the offerings there and shutting down those that just don't perform? Is that the strategy to kind of exist in this retail environment? That is part of the strategy. That you know, to to cut down your your weaker stores, get them out of the way, and focus on uh, on your stores where you can win better. Because you don't need as much retail footprint on the ground as you used to. Because one of the big areas of growth for most companies uh, is through online. Uh, so you don't need all that space, and that's just a cost overhead. So that's part of the strategy to improve. But another area to improve is. Looking at strategies, making sure you have something unique that'll draw people in, or that's a private label or some unique selling experience, or even Sephora in the case of J.C. Penney, to get people in the door. Once they're in the door, hopefully they'll buy more than just what they came for. Well, that's interesting that you say that because I always wondered too when they do something like that, if they put a Sephora in a store. I mean, can they? I guess they can measure uh, how much traffic that brings in and whether that leads to other sales. Can they? Can they show that that's paying off? That makes sense. Uh, they can. I mean, if you look at the credit card data, they know who's spending, how much they're spending. Uh, if they have the right uh, analytics, they can figure that out. You know, another area is you're taking the online, and when people buy online and pick up in the store, uh, most companies, including JCPenney, say that a lot of those consumers, once they're already in the store, they'll make another purchase, and that's another opportunity to make money. Hey, what about online? That's always obviously important, and we know that uh, they increased their online uh, product assortment by about 50% last year. They're planning to add, I think, another additional 600,000 items online this year. E-commerce business um, grew 20% from the prior year. Um, what do you see when it comes to inline? Got about 40 seconds here. Uh, you know, online sales, it's, it's important. you got to have it. It's not a panacea. There's cost with it, with selling online. But you, know, you want to make it as easy for your consumers so that they'll shop with you both online and in the store. All right. Going to leave there. Got a favorite name, though, in the retail space, just quickly? 
Uh, Macy's. We have a buy in Macy's. Really? Is it a re- is it on the real estate play, or is it you like their strategy? Uh, real estate is part of it. It's also got a strong dividend yield, and they're still making money. Yeah. Okay. That'll do it. Hey, listen, good to get some time for with you. Have a great weekend. Uh, Ephraim Levy, he is equity analyst at CFRA Research, joining us on the phone in New York City. Quick check on JCPenney's shares. As I mentioned earlier, they were down at their lows, uh, down about 12.8%. Right now, just down about 4.7%. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. U.S. Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross said President Trump has chosen a global tariff on steel and aluminum, really dimming the hopes of nations that are pressing for exemptions. Secretary Ross talked with David Weston earlier on Bloomberg Television. When I talked to you a few months ago, you said, actually, we're already in a trade war. I guess my first question is, whom are we at war with? Well, let's give you a little bit of perspective. Ever since World War II, the United States has been making unilateral concessions. Most recently, the big one was admitting China to the WTO. China is not playing by the rules of the WTO. They subsidize product, they dump product, they violate intellectual property rights, and they're not the only one. In the case of steel, there's global overcapacity of hundreds of millions of tons, of which about half the overcapacity is China, but the other half is various other countries. So there is a significant problem of dumping steel and dumping aluminum into the U.S. That has cost us probably 100,000 jobs between the two industries. So what the president is trying to do is to level the playing field and bring jobs back to U.S. This is about jobs. That's the real purpose of the whole thing. And it's also about national security as defined by the 232. That's the legal basis for putting these particular tariffs on. And that defines national security as including the economy, including unemployment, including essential infrastructure, things of that sort. So it isn't just military security, it's national security defined that way. So, Mr. Secretary, there are two things you said that I think no one who knows about this would disagree with. Number one, there's overcapacity on steel globally. Number two, China has participated in some unfair trading practices. But do those two things come together? Because essentially the president fired a gun in the trade war yesterday. But did he really hit China? Because after all, as you know so well, only something like 3% of our imports of steel come from China. Yeah, but as I said, it isn't just China. First of all, China trends ships quite a lot of product through other countries. We, we have many, many tariffs on many, many steel products from China. And what happens is you put a tariff on a particular product, and the next thing you know, it comes out of Vietnam, or it comes out of South Korea, or it comes out of some other country. So they've been doing a lot of trans shipping. And that's why, while on the face of it, their imports our imports from China of steel are actually lower than they were a few years ago. But that doesn't tell the real picture. And it also doesn't tell the picture of Chinese steel displacing steel in other countries, which they then have to dump onto the market. We are the world's largest import market for steel, and that's why we are the most vulnerable. 
So, Mr. Secretary, does the tariffs that have been imposed yesterday likely affect Canada and Mexico much more than they do China? Because, after all, I think something like 30 percent of U.S. exports of steel come from Canada. Did we really hurt Canada worse than we hurt China with this action yesterday? Well, the problem with the steel situation is that if you don't deal with it on a global basis, you'll have this recurring phenomenon of transshipment. As you know, I proposed a range of remedies, all of which were intended to produce the same net effect, namely getting the steel industry in the U.S. up to 80 percent of capacity. That's the benchmark it needs for long-term viability. And it's important because there's only one U.S. manufacturer of the kind of armor plate that the Army uses in its vehicles. In aluminum, there's only one U.S. manufacturer of the high-quality aluminum alloy needed for aerospace, for fighter planes, and for satellites. So we're down to very dangerous uh, circumstances, and we really can't let it go any further. So we unfortunately have to deal with a global problem on a global basis. And of the options that I presented, the president chose one, which was put broad tariffs on all product from all countries. There's only one person elected president, that's Donald J. Trump, then he chose the option he felt would be the most effective. All right, that was, of course, U.S. Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross speaking earlier with our David Weston of Bloomberg TV. Keep in mind that the European Union and Canada have warned of retaliation after the president's announcement regarding possible tariffs. The EU saying today that it could target imports of Harley-Davidson motorbikes, Levi Strauss jeans, and bourbon whiskey as part of its response. Many nations are making a last-ditch attempt to have their nation's steel and aluminum exempt from the action, a targeted strategy that the U.S. Defense Department has voiced some support for. And from we heard, of course, earlier from our Latin American economist how the timing of this is really kind of interesting because we have those NAFTA talks uh, underway this week. So this is kind of landing in the middle of all of that. So trade negotiators certainly involved in NAFTA watching this as well. You are listening to Bloomberg Markets on this Friday. I'm Carol Masser, and this is Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. We've got Jim Lowell back with us, Chief Investment Officer at Advisor Investments, over $5 billion in assets under management. Jim joining us on the phone from Newton, Massachusetts. How's the weather by you? The weather is blowing hard. I'd say we're looking at 50 miles an hour of wind and many inches of rain. Unbelievable. Yeah, I heard something about the surges on the coastlines. It could be um, pretty dramatic uh, as we go through this storm. Um, hopefully everybody stays safe uh, near you, Jim. Talk to us about the market environment this week. We saw several back-to-back declines in the S&P 500, a trend line uh, above 1%, those declines, that we haven't seen since concerns over the Brexit vote. The recent market turns, what does it say to you? It says to me that we're 
staring at what we thought we would stare at this year, which is a return of relatively normal volatility after uh, an abnormal absence of it throughout 2017. We know that there are many things that impinge upon uh, the daily market, not the least of which are, are concerns about domestic policy and agendas that, that get announced for the moment. So this is a, this is a marketplace in which investors are going to have to be uh, a little bit more steely in terms of their nerves, a little bit more savvy in terms of focusing, we think, more on actively managed mutual funds or actively managed, managing their ETFs rather than just assuming that buying last year's basket of goods is still going to deliver all the fruits by year end. Are you worried, though, about the growth momentum in the U.S. economy? We've been talking a lot, too, about the synchronized global economy and the growth there, but how we're starting to see some reports, including the Canadian, I think, GDP report, or there's some economic data stats out of Europe yesterday involving the manufacturing sector that weren't necessarily showing growth, the momentum maybe, you know, continuing. Um, when you look at the outlook, the growth outlook, and what that means for corporate profits, uh, what do you see, Jim? Well, I think you raise a, a very interesting and I'd say brilliant point, and that is that this is a market, at least in terms of on the days that it's been selling off, has really been doing so on the assumption that we're going to enter into some sort of uh, heated inflation, heated interest rate hike moment, born of not just our economy growing like gangbusters, but really the global economy doing so as well. We think that certainly uh, our economy is going to continue to be able to expand. We think that select established foreign markets and selected emerging market economies also are going to be able to expand, but it's not even and it's not a certainty. And so one of the things that we're focused on are what we call the fundamentals, earnings, interest rates, economic data, what we see we like. We continue to think that the undergirding for uh, more gains, hopefully by year end, comes from the fact that we are in a slow growth, not no growth, and certainly not overheating growth mode. But anything can change on a dime, especially when you have uh, things like a sudden change to the tax law or the potential for a sudden change to uh, the trade and tariff landscape as we currently know it. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating, right? We get that trade overhaul program where people are saying, okay, that's going to provide, you know, more money uh, into the economy for corporations, for individuals. We saw that a little bit in uh, the latest uh, personal spending data. And then conversely, <laughs> you have talk of increasing tariffs and maybe who knows the potential for a global trade war and whether or not that negates that tax cut program that we just got. Well, it's rare that you get to talk about Smoot-Hawley in 1930 in any <laughs> current conversation, but we're all talking about it now. Back then, one one tariff uh, led to nearly 800 tariffs inside of a 12-month period as every senator and congressperson decided to try and get some for their district. Hopefully, this won't be anything like that. We know that we've seen tariffs imposed by George Bush, by Clinton, by Reagan. Um, so they haven't done so recently. They feel like they might be new and dramatically imposing. And, of course, the way they were delivered made it all the drama out of it. But next week we'll get hopefully more details. We know Secretary of Defense Mattis is calling for at least a more targeted and tailored kind of tariff that doesn't punish our allies as, as much as it might our foes. But it is in a globally linked economy. Uh, isolationism is unlikely to work nearly as well as those who predict it will work well 
suggest. Hey, Jib, throw on top of that uh, something we talked about, too. We got news that uh, the Bank of Japan starting to think about how to exit, you know, its stimulus program. And they're talking about uh, the fiscal year starting in April 2019. So we have some time, you know, more than a year here. But nonetheless, that global conversation regarding monetary policy, you know, going into a new phase, a new chapter. We think it's healthy. Anytime you can remove a crutch from a patient and let them begin to walk on their own two feet rather than aided by massive stimulus, uh, we think is, is both a very good thing, but it also is a tricky thing. Uh, you know, we, we ourselves are just beginning the process of, of really understanding not just how to unwind or what the potential consequences may or may not be. Japan will obviously be able to watch out our Fed uh, maneuvers and hopefully take a few pages of success from uh, they're unwinding. Certainly, uh, the Fed's playbook for helping stave off a great recession worldwide uh, was something that everyone learned from. Jim, saved you about 40 seconds for kind of an investment strategy at this juncture, just quickly. Stellar stock pickers with long-term track records in volatile markets. So somebody like Don Kilbride at Vanguard Dividend Growth, somebody like Joel Tillinas at Fidelity low Price Stocks. We think this is a marketplace where investors absolutely can still find opportunity, but it's not riskless. Diversification, especially on a global nature, and also in terms of asset allocation, diversification among your bond fund investments is going to make all the difference. Yeah, that Fidelity Low Price Stock Fund, just checking it out in the past year, up of almost 15%, beating uh, 93% of its uh, competitors or its peers. Jim Lowell, thank you so much. Have a great week and stay safe. Chief Investment Officer at Advisor Investments, over $5 billion in assets under management. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.